friends. Um, this morning, um, I was wanting to talk a little bit about fear. Um, and like I said, we're living in interesting times. So um, the opposite of fear is love. It's very difficult to hold both of those things simultaneously. That um, uh, when we create uh, enemies, uh, we dehumanize people and create something that we can be afraid of. Right? As soon as we've done that, we have shut off our ability to have um, empathy, compassion, uh, and love. That that creates a fear. We can create it ourselves, we can nourish it ourselves, and we can act on it. And usually, uh, um, it doesn't turn out well. So our practice is about being able to be mindful of what we're doing. What are we doing with our own minds? What are we doing uh, to cultivate uh, understanding and compassion and love rather than watering seeds of fear in our consciousness and developing anger and hatred and violence? And so, again, I'd like to start with a poem. Uh, this one is by William Martin. And he said, love is the basic energy of life. Nothing can stop your love from growing because everything is fuel for its fire. Like a tree that bends easily in the wind, it accommodates to the natural events of life and does not become overwhelmed. It uses the times we call good to fashion dances of joy. It uses the times we call bad to create the depths of our compassion. Nothing is wasted, nothing is lost. So we like to think about the fact that um, uh, we only want good times. We only want uh, uh, pleasant things. We only want pleasure. We only want gain. We only want fame. All of that side of the vicissitudes. But uh, what Thich Nhat Hanh teaches us is about the goodness of love and the goodness of suffering. Uh, that when we can learn from our suffering, we can... Um, uh, actually progress on our spiritual path. When we suffer, suffering opens the uh, door of compassion to us. Uh, when I got diagnosed with breast cancer, before, I, before that happened, I thought, I've got tons of compassion for people with cancer. There's no problem there. And then I had my own diagnosis within five minutes. It was like, boom, uh, this huge bell of mindfulness, this huge Zen stick saying, wow, I have something in common with one in eight women. One in eight women have experienced just what I'm experiencing now. A whole new level of understanding and compassion. Uh, so, yes, and we can have compassion. And sometimes when we suffer, it can deepen our capacity. Um, right now, we're living in really, really interesting times. And uh, a lot of seeds of fear are being watered uh, in the collective consciousness. So I wanted to read something out of Ty's book called Fear. He's gotten something for everyone, uh, for every occasion. 
and he says, when I met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1966 during the Vietnam War, one of the things we discussed was the importance of building community, or as we call it in Buddhism, Sangha. Dr. King knew that community building was vital. He was aware that without a community, little could be accomplished. A solid sense of brotherhood and sisterhood gives us strength when we feel fear or despair and helps sustain our power of love and compassion. Brotherhood and sisterhood can heal and transform our lives. Dr. King spent much of his time building a community he called the Beloved Community. Our Beloved Community, our Sangha, is a group of people who together practice generating mindfulness, concentration, and insight. Everyone feels embraced and supported by the collective energy generated by the practice. Often, our feelings of loneliness and isolation feed our fears and encourage uh, them to grow. In the Sangha, there are people who are solid enough in the practice that they can sit with us and share their energy of mindfulness. We can call on them for support. Dear brother, dear sister, I need your presence. I have a big pain and by myself I cannot embrace it. So please help me. We breathe together and with our combined energy of mindfulness, we're able to recognize, embrace, and transform that pain. We know we are part of the Sangha River. We are not isolated drops of water and we will make it to the ocean together. When there's healing and peace, we know it's a real Sangha. Building a Sangha means building your safety, your support, and your happiness. Then he goes on to say, when communication is cut off, we all suffer. When no one listens to us or understands us, we're like bombs ready to explode. Compassionate listening brings about healing. Sometimes only 10 minutes of listening deeply can transform us and bring a smile back to our lips. Many of us have lost our capacity for listening and using loving speech in our families. It may be that no one is capable of listening to anyone else. So we feel very lonely, even within our own families. We can go to a therapist, hoping that she will be able to listen. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes they cannot listen as deeply as we would like. So if we really love someone, we need to train ourselves to listen deeply. We also need to train ourselves to use loving speech. We've lost our capacity to say things calmly. We get irritated too easily. Every time we open our mouths, our speech is, uh, is sour or bitter. We have lost our capacity for speaking with kindness. Without this ability, we cannot succeed in restoring harmony, love, and happiness. Um, and so he says, uh, you have to practice breathing mindfully in and out so that compassion always stays with you. You listen without giving advice or passing judgment. You can say to yourself about the other person, I am listening to him just because I want to relieve his suffering. This is called compassionate listening. You have to listen in such a way that compassion remains with you the whole time you're listening. That is the art. If halfway through listening, irritation or anger comes up, then you cannot listen deeply anymore. You have to practice, invite a bell, and breathe deeply three times. Okay? Come back to ourselves. So our practice... As I said this morning, when we do our sitting meditation, we're practicing coming back to ourselves. We're practicing coming to that solid place in ourselves. In our practice, we need to be able to uh, develop our courage to be able to be with our own suffering. We need to be able to uh, touch suffering. Uh, touch it? 
acknowledge it, embrace it. If we feel that we're being overwhelmed, we need to let it go, send it back to the store. It's a little bit weaker every time we do that. And then we water some seeds of joy to expand our capacity. And we do this over and over and over again. It's really interesting. Um, I always love the walking meditation. Um, and today I found it particularly nourishing. Um, it was so beautiful out there. And um, at one point, Karen invited the bell. We stopped, and I noticed there was this very beautiful, elegant, stately evergreen tree right in the middle of the, the dog park. And the bottom of the tree was thoroughly wet up to about this time. <laughs> I had just come back from New York City. I've been there for the last few days. And um, the hospital that I go to is up on the Upper East Side. So there are a lot of very fancy buildings up there. And most of them have plantings along the sidewalk. And they have very nice little wrought iron fences around their plantings. And on the wrought iron fences, it says, curb your dog. Uh, please care for the plants, curb your dogs. And so I was looking at that tree and immediately I thought, hmm, little tender plants can't withstand dogs. But these stately old trees have no problem whatsoever. And so it brought to my mind how beautiful it is that if uh, we can be lucky enough to live long enough, and we can expand our capacity to be with suffering. We can strengthen that capacity the older we get. So that uh, a lot of people think of old age as being a weakening, that uh, we become weaker, everything in our body is shutting down, we're losing capacities, yada, yada, yada. However, our ability to withstand suffering can become much, much stronger. Um, uh, like the Buddha taught, that we have uh, um, if you put a, a little teacup of uh, salt, um, if you put salt, excuse me, if you put salt in a teacup, you can sully the water so you can't drink it. It becomes undrinkable. If you put the same amount of salt in a river, it makes no difference whatsoever. And so our practice is to expand our capacity to be with what is. So our heart is as wide as a river. So we have a heart as wide as a river. We can hold all of it. We can go through life with equanimity. Um, I think when we talk about, uh, uh, when I'm talking about, we say, what does that have to do with fear? What does that have to do with what we're going through as a country? It has everything, I think, to do with it. That um, uh, if we don't have a large capacity, if we have not been practicing, if we haven't developed our capacity to look deeply in order to understand ourselves, in order to understand other people. We go through life taking things at the uh, surface, uh, at their face value. And if we do that right now, we're in very deep trouble because we're being told um, by some powers that be that we shouldn't believe what we see and we shouldn't believe what we hear. Okay? If we believe that, if we believe that, um, we can be in very deep trouble. And what it does is sow the seeds of mistrust. That is very, very weakening, and it plants the seeds of fear. Can't trust anybody. Can't trust anything. So people are living in a state of, uh, of mistrust. 
I thought it was very beautiful. Um, uh, a while ago, I heard, um, uh, I listened to a uh, commencement speech that uh, Mr. Rogers gave at Dartmouth College. And um, it was so funny because I read about, of course, there's always comments about everything. And, uh, but they said that some of the, a couple of the students at Dartmouth College were very upset that they'd invited Mr. Rogers as their commencement speaker, that this is a Ivy League college and they need to have scholars be their commencement speakers or somebody who's tremendously successful and yada, da, 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 da. Well, luckily, the majority of people at Dartmouth disagreed and he gave a beautiful speech. But the thing that I love, there was one sentence in his speech. He said, it's not the honors and the prizes and the fancy outsides of life which ultimately nourish our souls. It's the knowing that we can be trusted, that we never have to fear the truth, that the bedrock of our lives from which we make our choices is very good stuff. And I thought, amen. Amen, brother. If I were at Dartmouth College, he wouldn't have had to say anything else in his commencement speech. That would be uh, a lifetime of practice right there. To trust ourselves. When I talked at the beginning about creating this clearing in the dense forest of our life, to be able to keep coming back to our inner wisdom, to our true nature. We've all been disconnected, so we don't trust our inner wisdom. We think it's someplace out there. Somebody's got the right answer. My job is to find that person to get the right answer. Uh, when in fact, what the patriarch of our, our lineage, Master Lynchy, uh, was noted for saying, don't come to me looking for the secrets of enlightenment. Don't come to me looking for the secrets of awakening. They're in you. Whack! And then he hits you with a Zen stick. Okay? So this is the, this is the lineage that we're a part of. And Thich Nhat Hanh it follows that to the nth degree. When he was telling us about this, he said, very strong, very strong. Master Lin Chi was a very strong teacher. He said, uh, uh, he would punch people and he'd hit people with a Zen stick. He said, Tai doesn't punch people. He doesn't hit people with a Zen stick. But the spirit is exactly the same. And then he gave this big smile. And I thought, yep. And I've heard Thich Nhat Hanh use a Zen stick on a number of occasions. Uh, just by responding in a way that sets people's minds totally reeling. It's like doing mental Aikido with some people. Uh, so uh, we need to be able to develop some trust in ourselves. We need to be able to, and this is the beauty of being, I, I think sometimes we lose our appreciation for the Sangha because it becomes just normal, of course. Of course there are nice people in the Sangha. You know, why wouldn't there be? Um, but how, how precious it is to be with a group of people who are trying to cause no harm, that are doing our best to be able to develop our courage, to be able to be honest with ourselves and each other. That is huge. That doesn't happen everywhere uh, in, the, uh, in the culture. What's happening in our culture right now, again, when we practice, we don't have to look and try to find an enemy and create an other and create a duality and say, oh, those people and this. What we can look at is this is this way because that is that way. This is what the Buddha taught. Cause, when causes and conditions are sufficient, things manifest. When causes and conditions are insufficient, they cease to manifest. So what our situation tells us is that enough causes and conditions were sufficient for this to manifest. 
And this is not something that just the players in Washington are part of. This is something that the collective has been being conditioned with for years. And it's now manifesting. And personally, I don't think it could get any clearer myself. But I keep thinking that, and then it gets clearer. Um, but this is what, what if, we, if we practice, this is how we view things. That it's like, uh, we don't have to rail against what is. We need to understand what is. And then what we do is figure out, OK, if uh, the collective consciousness has been conditioned in a way to be 100% uh, self-focused and individualistic to think that it's all about I, me, and mine, which is the antithesis of what the Buddha taught, if the collective consciousness has been conditioned to believe that corporations are people, if the uh, collective has been conditioned to believe that money is the most important thing, what else would we expect? It's the logical outcome. So we don't need to rail against it. We just need to look deeply to say, and I don't have to hate where I am, I don't have to hate the, what can I do to help? That's the only question that remains. It was so beautiful, and at this, these times I've been looking <laughs> uh, on a daily basis for people that inspire me. I need to water my seeds of joy. I need to nourish myself and remind myself that the majority of people, as Lily Tomlin said, uh, she's one of my favorite uh, philosophers, um, she said 98% um, of Americans are good, wholesome, wonderful, caring people. It's just the lousy 2% that get all of the uh, publicity, but after all, we elected them. Okay? So we need to remember that we can look at what happens and go, oh, that's all there is in the world. Oh, no, it's not. Because, I mean, personally, I like to support the Natural Resources Defense Council because I really care about the planet that I live on. Okay? I got a notice from them saying they have filed a lawsuit every eight days since the inauguration to counteract the deregulation that's happening in our government. Okay? That's a wonderful thing, I think. I think, yay, these people care. When they, when they implemented the um, travel ban, within hours, 7,000 attorneys showed up at all different uh, airports pro bono to help. Okay? Um, I just read an article about uh, a woman who read an article about the separating out of children at our border, and she was appalled. She just couldn't, couldn't believe it, and she's thinking, what can I do to help? Well, she has a husband that travels constantly, and she said the downside is we don't get to spend much time together. The upside is that we get tons of, uh, um, what do you call it, rewards, uh, uh, air miles. And so... Um, she wrote on a Twitter thing that she was giving all of her air miles to uh, the families to get reunited at the border. And she left, she came back, and she said she had something like 2,000 hits or something. I don't do Twitter at all, but, so I don't know what you call it, the tweeting, twittering, whatever she was doing. She got all of these thousands of people to respond, and they've all given air miles. So um, this is what I love to be reminded of. This is the basic goodness that's in every one of us. And it's like um, uh, the, the man from Malawi who was in Paris, who um, saw a four-year-old hanging from a balcony, a fourth-story balcony. Did you see that? Unbelievable. 
I mean, this guy was so amazing. And he scaled this building. He just went right up the front of the building, climbing from balcony to balcony. Luckily, he was very tall, I think. But he was able to just stand on one balcony, grab another balcony, pull himself up, stand on that balcony. He just went right up the front of the building and grabbed this four-year-old with one hand and plunked him down on the porch. And when somebody asked him uh, why he did that, he said, I love children. You know? He didn't ask that kid, like, what religion are you? What country are you from? Are you legal or illegal? You know, he didn't stop. It was his basic fitness. It was just that, that uh, bodhicitta comes right up, and all we want to do is help. Um, another one that, uh, that uh, Mr. Rogers shared was the one about the Special Olympics. He said, for a 100-yard dash, there were nine contestants, all of them so-called physically or mentally disabled. All nine of them assembled at the starting line, and at the sound of the gun, they took off. But not long afterwards, one little boy stumbled and fell and hurt his knee and began to cry. The other eight children heard him crying. They slowed down, turned around, and ran back to him. Every one of them ran back to him. One little girl with Down syndrome bent down and kissed the boy and said, this will make it better. The little boy got up, and he and the rest of the runners linked their arms together and joyfully walked to the finish line. They all finished the race at the same time. And when they did, everyone at the stadium stood up and clapped and whistled and cheered for a long time. People who were there are still telling this story with great delight. You know why? Because deep down, we know that what matters in this life is more than winning for ourselves. What really matters is helping others win too, even if it means slowing down and changing our course now and then. That was Mr. Rogers' take. My take was also that it's that recognition that these kids had not yet been disconnected from their basic goodness, from their awareness of interbeing. There's a fellow being that's just suffering. Boom, we've got to help. That's all there is to it. It wasn't like they didn't have to stand, to, stand there together discussing, well, you know, should we really finish the race? I really want to win. There wasn't one second of that. A human being is suffering. We need to help. And every one of them turned right around and went to help. I love this. I love to be reminded. What is it that moves us about that? What I believe moves us is the fact that there's this recognition. It mirrors back for us our true nature. That's how we all come in. And then we go through life getting more and more fearful, more and more grasping. Oh my gosh, if I don't have a trust fund for my kids, something horrible is going to happen. They're going to be in deep trouble. The whole world is going to fall off its axis. Whatever we want to worry about. We create fear and suffering for ourselves and for other people. Okay? And it's not to say we're 100% irresponsible, we never think about paying our bills or anything else. It has nothing to do with it. It has to do with generosity of spirit. It has to do with a recognition of interbeing. Critically important, I think. So, my dear friends, um, how do we go about doing this and cultivating that? We have five mindfulness trainings that we can use as a beautiful roadmap for cultivating our consciousness, for developing every single one of those trainings has to do with respecting ourselves, each other, and the planet. That's really what they're about. And they help us to make decisions based on what's gonna cause the least amount of suffering 
for myself and everyone else. When we can do that, we can um, uh, create a heaven on earth. When we don't do that, we wind up in a hell realm. And this is what I'm observing, is that, um, uh, and this is, I learned this really in a major way when I was doing crisis intervention counseling with teenagers in high school. And because I was doing crisis intervention counseling, I saw kids in crisis most of the time. And a lot of the kids were kids getting in trouble all the time. And they were kids that would do things that were um, hurtful to other people. They would uh, rip people off and get busted for breaking and entering and stuff like that. And what I learned from them was that they were the most paranoid kids in the school, that they didn't trust anybody because they knew what their minds were thinking. They knew how they were viewing the world. They were going to a situation casing out the joint. And they just assumed everybody else was doing that too. Okay. Now we have a situation where we have people in power who are looking for revenge, setting up enemies, trying to get revenge. That's a hell realm. So it's easy to maintain compassion for people like this. That is a total hell realm to just be going through life trying to keep score. Okay, I'm going to get back at you. I'll do. Imagine we are living in a Garden of Eden. This cosmos is a total miracle. And instead to choose to spend every waking hour thinking about how I've been wronged and what I want to do and how I'll make people suffer, rather than what can I do to water the flowers in this garden? What can I do to water the flowers in my fellow beings? Which would you prefer? We all have a choice. And this is the beauty of our practice. Is if we do practice, we develop, and we are retraining our minds, so we actually choose. You know, and it's almost comical in a way for me. You know, I have a weird sense of humor, as most of you know, I think. But um, I watch these people, like, you'll see something with your own eyes. You read something, a, a transcript or something like that. And people say, this is what I did. And then 10 minutes later saying, no, I didn't. You know, for me, all I can think of is that years ago, uh, I remember reading a newspaper article about a guy who was smuggling cockatoos from South America. This is how my mind works, I'm sorry to say, but it's the truth. So I'm listening to all this and I think of this guy smuggling cockatoos from Brazil. And he comes into the U.S. and they stopped him at customs because they noticed he was acting strangely. He was jerking around and just really antsy. And so they took him aside and they searched him and they found two rare cockatoos in his underwear. They said he was badly pecked. And what did the guy say when they take these two cockatoos out of his underwear? How did they get there? Can you stand it? I mean, and so whenever I hear these people denying what they just did, all I can think of is cockatoos in their underwear. I think these guys have cockatoos in their underwear. You know? You've got to maintain a sense of humor in the midst of it. If it all becomes grim, it's, you're not going to survive. You will not survive. 
At the same time, we do every single thing we can to help. Okay? Because it's pathetic. I mean, truly. That's really pathetic. I mean, how did they get there? That's pathetic. Um, so to be able to put things in their proper perspective, to be able to see that every single one of us has been powerfully conditioned, every, without exception, every single one of us has developed habits, habit energy, because of the conditioning we've experienced. So whether people are doing things that are constructive or destructive, helpful or unhelpful, harmful or, or helpful, um, our job is to see it for what it is. It's simply the product of their conditioning, the logical outcome. We don't need to blame, criticize, whatever. We need to look deeply and say, what can I do to rectify the situation? Okay? And when somebody's reaping havoc, it doesn't mean you don't stop them. That's the other thing. It's not saying, oh, I understand, so therefore it's okay. It's like you jumping up and down on my foot, and I'm saying, oh, I understand that you're a little bit twisted, so that's okay if you jump up. No, my foot hurts just the same, and you're not jumping on my foot. So it's important for us to get very clear that I will do whatever I can. Like I said, you know, the Natural Resources Defense Council is doing everything they can to stop it, uh, to make sure that uh, things are protected. We can do that. We don't have to water the seeds of hatred, anger, and violence in us. We simply do what we can to help. Capiche? It's a very deep practice, um, but I have confidence in this. Um, so, I just wanted to end today with a song. I think we'll find out. But, um, because most, most importantly is to constantly be monitoring our own capacity to get up in the morning and see, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh says he checks in with all of his five standards every morning, um, you know, form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness, goes through through the inventory, and looks, my body, is my body trying to tell me something I'm not listening to? Uh, my feelings, are, do I have very strong feelings I'm not paying attention to? Are they screaming at me and I'm ignoring them and just staying as busy as I can stay? Um, he said, if we ignore, we need to embrace those feelings as a mother would a baby, and if we ignore it, they'll just scream louder. So we really need to pay close attention to ourselves. We need to take really good care of ourselves. We need to have nothing but love and compassion for ourselves. And when we can do that, we expand the capacity from that teacup to the river. That's what happens. So watering seeds of joy, as you know, is one of my favorite things to do. I'm gonna rise, rise and run to Shout out for praise and glory Gonna tell it all over again I'm gonna spread joy over this land Gonna put my shoulder to the yoke Gonna work hard till evening Then I'm gonna go down easy Gonna spread joy over this land Burden by the 
side of the road. Help my neighbor pick up his load. And we're going to walk, though our feet are slow. Just spread joy over this land. I'm going to spread joy over this land. I'm going to cast the seeds from the palm of my hand. And though the light is weak and the soil is mean, joy rises up from a power unseen. I'm a going down, down to the river to pray. Walk through the wilderness and find my way. And my jubilant feet the path will lay as I spread joy over this land. is about transforming our own suffering, being able to be with our suffering, taking really good care of our own suffering so that we can be there for other folks and be able to uh, uh, spread joy over this land. When we can water our own seeds of joy, it's not that hard to pass it on. JoanneFriday.com is supported by donations. If you'd like to contribute, visit the donations page on JoanneFriday.com. 